Hope you have your Bibles with you. If not, there's a Bible in front of you, in the pew in front of you, you can use. But we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 5, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time together. So I hope you have that open, whether it's a physical paper-filled Bible or a Bible app of some sort. But I hope you have that in front of you. The reading comes from Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 18 through 33. Paul writes, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, Paul is very concerned with how Christians represent God to the watching world. Very concerned. You see it all throughout his letters. He's very concerned with not only how we treat one another, but how it looks to the world. He wants to give people an accurate view of who God is. And that's why earlier in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of God. In other words, I want you to show the world through your behavior something of what God is like. And then he talks about how we, uh, we... live out our faith in how, how we express our sexuality and our speech. He talks about how when we, we exercise our faith that we are lights in a dark world. And then when we come to verse 18, he gives us another command that ties into how Christians in Ephesus, as well as Christians today, are to light up the world. And so Paul writes in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, which is an interesting word, right? It's one we just throw around often. It means uh, just wasteful excess. Uh, So don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so Paul's argument here is, if we're going to be lights in the world, if we're going to imitate God, then we need to be filled with the Spirit. Well, that's great, but how do you do that? At least that's my question when I was reading that. Well, that's good. How do you do that? We know how to get drunk with wine. Just keep drinking alcohol. That'll do it. But how do you, how are you filled with the Spirit? Well, first of all, Paul has already told us in this letter that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, 
then you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Every, this, what this means is that every Christian has the Holy Spirit living within them. Another way to think about this is that every Christian has something that a non-Christian does not have. There is a difference between when you did not know Christ and now that you know Christ. And so the Christian now, we have this internal working of God through His Spirit. This internal working of God that is prompting us to do what He wants us to do. And this is active, this is alive in the life of the Christian where it is not, at least in the same way, in the life of the non-Christian. And yet at the same time, we can refuse that prompting. And that's why Paul writes in the letter, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. This is something that you need to continually want to do and seek to do daily. Now, Paul says, okay, I don't want you to get drunk with wine, which is interesting that he would make this contrast between getting drunk with wine and then being filled with God's Spirit. So, so what is he telling us? Well, we all know, I would imagine most of us, if not all of us, know the effects of alcohol on someone when they drink too much, right? When they drink too much alcohol, it affects them, right? It affects you how you think. It slows your, your motor skills down. Uh, some people, their whole personality changes uh, when they have too much to drink, right? It affects how you think, how you speak. It affects your behavior. And so Paul's point is simple. It's this. As Christians, we should not want anything else to be influencing our behavior other than the Spirit of God. You know, we don't want alcohol to influence us or some other substance or self-centeredness or whatever it may be. We want our behavior to be driven and directed by the Spirit of God. That's the influence we want to pursue. And so, and so we want God's Spirit to influence how we talk and how we relate to one another and how we behave and how we think. And Paul uses this verb, be filled. It's actually a verb that means we need to continuously be doing this. This is an ongoing process. You know, you're sealed with the Spirit when you're saved, when you come to Christ. And then now, we are to walk in the Spirit, which means a daily, moment-by-moment surrender to God in our lives. And so, this is what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to be filled with the Spirit. He wants us to continually walk with God, allow God to influence how we think, how we speak, how we behave, so that we can imitate God, so people can see something of who God is. And then Paul goes on to say that as you are filled with the Spirit... It began, you know, God's Spirit expresses Himself through your life in a variety of ways. You'll see some changes going on in your life, and there's some things that you'll begin to see. It begins to actually affect how we relate to each other. And the first thing He mentions, which is interesting, is that if you're filled with the Spirit, then you will become a singer. Amen. amen. I got an amen from Floyd over here. You'll become a singer. You may be thinking, Ron, have you ever heard me sing? I mean... I must not be filled with the Spirit. <laughs> I'm filled with something else that doesn't sound very good. But he's, he's saying that, you know, when we sing, we're, we're, we're telling God something. We're expressing ourselves. And so singing is a powerful expression of praise. And so what he says, actually, in verse 19, he says that we address one another, or we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. 
And so if we are filled with the Spirit, the gist of this is we're going to use our speech in a way that builds people up, points them to Jesus, praises Jesus for who He is. And notice that the audience of our singing is twofold, right? We address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So we're addressing each other, but yet we're making melody in our hearts to God. And so simultaneously we're praising God, but we're also building each other up in the faith as we express our spirit-filledness. This is what God's Spirit produces in our lives, that we use our speech in a certain way. We, we're concerned with what we say, and we want to build people up. We want to praise God for who He is. Which takes us down to verse 20. Another uh, evidence of being filled with the Spirit is that you're a thankful person. And we've sung about that earlier today, but verse 20 says, Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, a spirit-filled Christian is a thankful person, which is a very timely reminder as we march toward Thanksgiving, right? We should be thankful. And I believe what he's saying here is that no matter what happens in our lives, we always have something to be thankful for. And that is what God has done for us through Christ, the gospel. We could be thankful for that. Uh, so, what Paul's saying is, as we're filled with the Spirit, these, these activities begin to show themselves in our lives. We become singers, and it affects how we speak to one another. And we become thankful people. And then also, it affects how we act toward each other in, in the sense that, verse 21, it says, Spirit-filled Christians are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, we should love each other. We should serve each other. We should love our neighbor as ourselves. We should look out for the interest of others more so than our own. That's what the Spirit of God produces in the life of the believer. And so a Spirit-filled Christian is one who is concerned with how God wants us to interact with the people that we're in relationships with. Whether that's in uh, a church family, uh, immediate family, um, a marriage, uh, the workplace. He wants us to live out His design in every area of life. And so Paul says that we are to submit to one another. And then he begins to spell this out in the rest of chapter 5 as to how that looks. And then even into chapter 6, he begins to explain how this looks in the context of a marriage relationship, the parent-child relationship, and then the master-slave relationship. And these, these teachings about how you interact with people in these different contexts marriage, the workplace, etc., uh, parent-child, uh, are referred to as household codes. Household codes. And this is not something that's unique to Christianity. Um, but what is unique is the amount of time that Paul gives to those in leadership positions. He tends to focus more on making sure those who are in leadership roles are doing it according to God's design. Because as we know, those who are in leadership roles can tend to misuse their roles. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to... And remember, all of this is in context of being spirit-filled. Okay, all of this is in context of being spirit-filled. A spirit-filled Christian is, is the one who is singing, who is making melody to the Lord, who is 
filled with thanksgiving and who is submitting to one another. And then he says, and this is how it looks in marriage, parent-child relationships, and in master-slave relationships, or what we'll look at as more workplace. And so being filled with the Spirit is the overarching command, and then bam, 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 this is what it looks like in these different contexts. Okay, so this morning, we're going to talk about Spirit-filled relationships part one, and then we'll do part two and part three. I know that's very creative, but that's all I got. So let's look at this, uh, the marriage context. <clears throat> and what's interesting here about this passage, verses 22 to 33, is how much space Paul devotes to the role of the wife and how much space he devotes to the role of the husband. If you want to count them up, kids, maybe this would be something you enjoy doing during the sermon. Uh, you can count the words, and he uses 40 words in his exhortation to the wife but he uses 115 words for the husband. Of course, some of you wives may be thinking, well, I know why he does that. <laughs> Sometimes it takes more than once to tell him to do something. But, but anyway, I don't know. But I think what he is doing is emphasizing, he's making sure that the husband understands his role because the husband is, is in this leadership role, especially in the first century, which is a very patriarchal society, uh, husbands could very easily abuse that role. And so Paul wants to make sure they understand what they should be doing and what they should not be doing. And so Paul is very concerned with how Christians uh, conduct themselves within the marriage relationship. And so let's look at uh, verses 22 through 23. I'm not going to read those again. Uh, we're going to just allude to them here and there as we walk through these uh, few minutes together. But basically he's... he's Unpacking. This is God's design for marriage. And this is what you see in Ephesus. This is what you see in Augusta. This is what you see in the world. But this is what God says is true about marriage. Which includes the role and responsibility for the wife. And then the role and responsibility for the husband. And Paul basically says two things. And I'm not going to go in great detail because I've done it before in other of the passages. And I want to specifically talk about a few other aspects of the marriage today. But here's the gist. Paul basically says two things. One, he says, the role of the wife is to submit to her husband like the church submits to Christ. And then two, the role of the husband is to love his wife like Christ loves the church. That's the gist. That's the the bottom line uh, when you read these two uh, roles, about these two roles. And so what we see through this passage, though, is the key to understanding the roles of husbands and wives in a marriage relationship is a growing understanding of the gospel. This is where the roles are birthed out of. This, this, if you don't understand the gospel, you can't be a spirit-filled husband and wife. I mean, you just can't do it. You can't live out this role without understanding the gospel. It's all rooted in the gospel. And so Paul uses the church's relationship to Christ... To explain how the wife and husband should interact with one another. And so most, if if not all of you, have heard this passage taught. And you probably have a good idea of what it teaches. But what we see here is the husband has been given the responsibility to lead his family toward godliness. And the wife is to help him accomplish that. And I know that's not necessarily a popular view. But I do believe this passage teaches that there is... There are differing roles for the husband and wife in a marriage relationship. The husband has been given the responsibility to fulfill his leadership responsibility in a way 
that seeks the good of the wife. And that's what we see in the passage. And so the husband is to lead the marriage in a way that seeks the good of the wife. Just like Christ leads the church for the good of the church. This is the ideal. Okay, this is the spirit-filled ideal for Christian marriage. However, as we know, this is not always the reality. Right? It doesn't always work that way. Even though this is what we should be seeking to become and pursue, this is not always how it looks. And so, in first century Ephesus, for example, like I mentioned earlier, was a very patriarchal society. Which means the men pretty much had all the benefits. I mean, the benefit of education, uh, being involved in the workplace, government, uh, all these benefits of society were enjoyed by the men, and they were not enjoyed by the women. And so the women were seen as a, you know, second-class citizens, and to a certain degree, they were experienced oppression. And this has happened all throughout history. And even today... You know, the average woman's experience versus the average man's experience, there may be disparity even there in the workplace and the benefits that you may receive as a man or a woman. And so in light of the the disparity at times, uh, even today between the rights and privileges that are enjoyed by men versus women, I wanted to do some research. I wanted to think about, okay... God teaches us this, that you know, the, the, the men, they have this leadership role in the role of the husband, and the wives are to submit to the husband in the, in the marriage relationship. And it's mutual love and, and respect and growth together in Christ. But how do we misuse these roles? And going into my research, I was thinking this. I was thinking, okay, I bet you what I'm going to find is when I get into how we distort and misuse our roles, especially the role of the husband, this is what I'm going to find. I'm going to find that men will tend to misuse their role in marriage by being too aggressive and violent, which will lead to um, a greater amount of domestic abuse as opposed to how women misuse their roles. And so before I find, you know, discover, as you discover my findings, uh, I want to tell you that that is definitely something that's true. That men can misuse their role in marriage um, and pervert this role that, that is God-given, uh, this leadership role. And let me just say this. Never do you see in Paul, in the writings of Paul in the New Testament, um, never do you see the New Testament writers saying that it is okay for a husband to make his wife submit. You don't see it. Just like Jesus never makes his church submit. Right? He doesn't use force or manipulation. What does he use? Sacrificial love, grace, and truth. That submission is voluntary. You all are Christians because you voluntarily chose Jesus. I mean, he, he gave himself for you and then you choose him. You decide to accept him into your life. And this is not something he has forced you to do. And nor will he. That is not the way Jesus leads his church. And that's not the way the husband should lead the marriage. And so the husband... 
should seek the good of the wife just like Jesus seeks the good of the church. Now, let me say this. Wives, if your husbands are abusive, because what happens oftentimes in abusive situations is, let's say, say for example, the husband, he's not getting his way. If the wife isn't doing what he wants her to do, then he'll become frustrated and then lash out in either physical or verbal abuse to try to get his way. And so wives, if you are in that type of relationship and your husband is abusive, then what you need to do is you need to come talk to me or our deacons because your husband is in sin and he is perverting the role of husband. And what we will do, according to what Jesus has told us to do in Matthew 18, we will go to him and we will confront him in his sin. And we will continue down the Lord's command and how to deal with that until the issue is resolved. Because the church will not stand for abuse. And so if that is you, then you need to come talk to me, you need to come talk to our deacons, and we will walk you through how to deal with that situation. Because we will not stand for spousal spousal abuse. Now, notice this too. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that a wife should remain silent in an abusive relationship. It doesn't say that. If you are in an abusive relationship, the Bible doesn't tell you to remain silent. But you need to come. You need to talk to me. You need to come talk to the deacons. You need to get your church family involved. So if you're in an abusive relationship... Or you may be saying, well, Ron, I'm not married. I'm not in that type of relationship. Well, if you find yourself in a relationship like that, still, you need to come talk to your church family and you need to let us help you walk through that and deal with that issue because that is, that is sinful. I mean, he's in the wrong and he needs to be confronted and dealt with. And so you need to come talk to us. So at the same time, though, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater, Right? In other words, some men abuse the role. True. However, let's don't throw out the role. Because the Bible teaches the husband has a role to play in the marriage. A specific role. A leadership role. And instead of throwing it all out, what we need to say is, well, Lord, how do, you want, how do I become what you want me to be? And he tells us, be like Jesus. That's what you need to do. You need to seek to be like Jesus. So the more you grow in your understanding of the gospel, the better husband you will be. So the more you, you experience Christ's leadership in your life, the more you're going to be able to exercise that leadership in your marriage in a like manner, right? That's Paul's argument. It all ties back to Christ and what He is doing for the church. And so God's Word is clear that the husband is the head of the marriage, And he should lead like Jesus leads the church, which is a sacrificial leadership that seeks the good of the wife. So now let me turn back to what I found in my research when I looked at domestic abuse in our country. And this may surprise you. Listen to this. According to a 2010 national survey by the Centers for Disease Control and Department of Justice, 
In the last 12 months, now this was a 2010 survey, so the last 10 months prior to that, in the last 12 months, sorry, in the last 12 months, more men than women were victims of domestic violence. And over 40% of severe physical violence was directed at men. I mean, did you catch that statistic? What they found in their survey over a 12-month period was that more men were victims of domestic violence than women. I mean, I'm assuming that's surprising to you because it was surprising to me. And so what we see here in the passage is, yes, husband and wives have been given these God-given roles and responsibility, which are spelled out to some degree here in Ephesians 5. But what we also see when we just look at the numbers here is that both men and women abuse their roles and may turn to abuse in order to get their way. Now, this abuse may not be physical, even though it does get physical, as we can see in that um, the extreme violence, but it also may be verbal. Because you see, women, you women are just as selfish as the men, <laughs> right? We're both fallen. One's not more fallen than the other. And so you're just as selfish as the men. And that's why we're seeing the results that we see. Both men and women are naturally self-centered. And when we allow that to drive our behavior, especially in marriage, it tends to uh, bring about frustration with our spouse, which sometimes leads us to some form of abuse to get our way. So the same is true for you, men. If you have a wife who is abusive, physically abusive, verbally abusive, the same is true for you. You need to come talk to me. You need to come talk to our deacons. And we will walk with you just like we'll walk with that wife, according to Matthew 18, in order to deal with the sin issue. In order to seek reconciliation, to seek restoration, and to help you move forward in a way God wants you to move forward according to Ephesians 5. So, same thing. The church, we don't, we don't tolerate abuse from either side, men or women. You know, we believe that God does not want that to occur and He wants us to live out our relationship with one another like Christ in the church. And so now women, in order for you to be the wives God is calling you to be, you must understand, you must grow in your understanding of the gospel. It's the same for you as it is for the men. The more that you understand as a follower of Jesus how you submit to Jesus' sacrificial and, and uh, loving leadership, then the more you'll understand how you interact with your husband. It's all birthed out of your relationship with the Lord. And now remember the context. This type of relationship can only work if both the husband and wife are spirit-filled. <laughs> it's all rooted in that. So if you don't have the spirit... This is one reason why we say you shouldn't date a non-Christian. Because when you get married, they don't have the Spirit. 
So how are they going to be Spirit-filled? How are they going to love the church like Jesus loves the church? But they don't even believe in Jesus. So very, even, from, even from attraction, dating, you've got to be careful. You've got to be on the path. You've got to embrace God's design if we want to see this type of marriage come into being. And so the same goes for the husband and wife. In order for us to fulfill our roles, to know how we should interact with each other, we have to understand the gospel and we have to seek to be spirit-filled. And there may be things here. In order to be spirit-filled, you know the way we're spirit-filled is we must be willing to acknowledge where we fall short. I mean, if we're going to be spirit-filled, we have to acknowledge those areas where we fall short. And we need to go to the Lord. And we need to tell Him those areas. And we need to ask Him for help. And there may be things coming to your mind even now that you say, you know, I need to... I, I, I have done this wrong in my marriage. And maybe the Lord is prompting you, you need, to, you need to confess this to your spouse. As well as confess it to the Lord and ask Him to help you, to strengthen you, to help you move forward in the way He wants you to move forward. You know, if you're going to be spirit-filled, you do not need to delay. Because when we delay the confession of our sin, the acknowledgement of our sin, when we delay that, we allow busyness to harden that prompting. You know, you leave here, you go to lunch, you turn on football or whatever you're going to do, and the next thing you know, that voice is silenced. And you're back to where you were. When the Lord brings something to your mind, don't delay. You need to deal with that. You need to take that to the Lord, acknowledge it. And then if He is prompting you to take that to, if you've sinned against someone, your spouse, you need to take that to, to them as well. Don't let time and busyness harden your heart. And if you're going to be the husband and the wife that God is calling you to be, then today is the day to begin following God's lead. Yeah, we must commit to being Spirit-filled, depending on God to give us the strength and the desire to move us forward to be what God is calling us to be. You know, Paul concludes this section on what it looks like to be Spirit-filled in the context of marriage in verse 33. And this is what he says. He says, Let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, this, is, this is God's plan, His design for a Spirit-filled marriage. And my, my desire is that each one of us, whether you're, whether you're married or single, that we would embrace God's design so that God would be glorified, the church would be edified, and that Christ would be magnified to our city. Let us pray. Father, we come to You and we acknowledge that our lives don't always line up with Your Word, Your design. But Lord, we are so grateful that You do not give up on us. Lord, that You give us Your Word, You give us Your Spirit, You give us Your people to speak truth in our lives, to convict us of sin, to uh, strengthen us against temptation. Uh, Lord, we, we give You all the praise and glory and credit for any good that we see in our lives, knowing that You're the one who produces that. And Lord, may we be the ones that submit to You 
and allow you to change our hearts, to change our desires. Lord, help us not to allow our past, even uh, past examples of husbands and wives that may not have been honoring to you. Help us not help us to not allow that to uh, dictate how we are. But Lord, let us look to your word. Let us look to Christ. Let us look to the gospel and what he has done for us as our model. That we may live out the marriage relationship in a way that is pleasing to you. And it also builds up our spouse and points them to you as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.